singing forth. All over the city you have these groups. It's, uh, it's quite something. It's an amazing place. So Josh, do you guys do electrical work? Okay. We, uh, we're finishing our series on the book of Judges today. This is part six. It's entitled Unlikely Heroes, True Stories of Overcomers in the Old Testament. And uh, for the last few weeks, we've been looking at uh, Gideon. And today we're going to conclude that. And we'll be looking at Judges 7 and 8. And our title is Finishing Strong. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here and to worship you with these songs, knowing that every word is true. In fact, uh, these words are only dim reflections of what we could actually say if we had the vocabulary to truly go further into your greatness. And uh, we look forward to the day when that can happen. But in the meantime, Lord, we, we treasure moments like this and opportunities like this. And we know that uh, as we open our hearts and minds, this will become a very meaningful time for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when the Midianites invaded Israel, God chose an unlikely hero named Gideon to be the one to lead the people against this enemy. But Gideon admitted, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. How can I save Israel? Nobody would have seen great potential in Gideon. It's kind of like that uh, college quarterback named Brady. He was the 199th player picked in the 2000 NFL draft. 198 players were picked ahead of him. Six quarterbacks were already chosen when the Patriots finally decided to give him a shot. They are known as the Brady Six. And that is their major claim to fame. Just imagine, Lyndon, the Vikings could have had Tom Brady. He was sitting there the whole time. So Tom Brady was an unlikely hero who became the greatest quarterback in NFL history. Three times league MVP, four times Super Bowl MVP, winning a record of six championships. Not bad for the 199th player in the 2000 draft. Because you can never tell how things are going to turn out. When we first saw Gideon, he didn't seem to have a lot of impressive things about him. He was a timid, frightened farmer hiding in a wine press. But God drafted him as his starting quarterback. It was a most unlikely choice, which was later compounded by the fact that God reduced his army by over 99%. All he had was 300 volunteers, untrained men, to face a military superpower, a weapon of mass destruction consisting of 135,000 soldiers. 
the Midianite Empire's Death Star. Now, theologically, it really was no problem because as Jonathan said in 1 Samuel 14, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Deuteronomy 32, 30 takes us inside the numbers and tells us one man can chase a thousand and two put 10,000 to flight. But on a military level, Gideon had 300 men and 300 doubts. So God decided to give him some encouragement. In chapter 7, verse 8, Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, and listen to what they are saying. Verse 13, Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley, bread, came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. You see, these tribes were very superstitious. They believed in signs and omens. They were influenced by dreams because they thought they revealed the future. And the meaning of this dream was quite obvious. Because in those days, people made their bread from wheat, not barley. Barley was used as food for animals. But because the Midianites always seized the wheat crops of Israel the Hebrews were forced to use barley for their daily bread. They may have even been mocked as barley eaters, just a bunch of animals. So the symbolism of this dream was prophetic. This was confirmation of what God had promised Gideon, corroborating testimony from an independent, unbiased source. This is what was trending in the Midianite camp. If it's hard to believe God, maybe you'll believe what the godless are saying. This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. It would always be interesting to hear what's going on behind the scenes. You know, out in public, the ungodly talk a good game. They sound very confident very defiant and irreverent. And it's intimidating for us to be on the receiving end of their ridicule. But I wonder what's going on behind the scenes, especially in the war room where the powers and principalities of darkness are planning to oppose thy kingdom come. Just imagine how futile their fury is. Underneath, they are demoralized and doomed. That's why when Jesus came to earth, the demons were terrified. What are you doing here? Our time isn't up yet. In Matthew 8, verse 29, What do you want with us, Son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Nevertheless, they still motivate the scoffers and mockers 
who appear on talk shows and news programs and in university classrooms, in courtrooms, and in government. And they sound so confident as they pride themselves that they are on the right side of history. But maybe it's all just a coping mechanism. Perhaps in their heart, they know the truth, that they are not forgiven. And so they must be already lost. And so they overcompensate with noise and fury to drown out their guilty conscience. Their defiance is really the, the last defense against inevitable defeat. They're just spitting into a tsunami. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped God. The battle is the Lord's. He's got this. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. What? What good is that going to do? This isn't a concert featuring Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. Verse 20, the three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets that they were to blow. They shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Philip Keller writes, the strange noise of the jars smashing sounded like a host of manacled ghosts surging around the camp, and the torches looked like the flames of hell. It was the ultimate mind game, and it worked to perfection. Verse 21, while each man held his position around the camp, the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. And so all Gideon's soldiers had to do was to stand and just watch the Midianites panic. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords, and the army fled. And now it was time to call out the reserves, those who had been dismissed, bring them back into the action. Verse 23, Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. And Gideon sent out messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they took the waters of the Jordan. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb, and they killed Oreb at the winepress. Well, there's a bit of sovereign irony. Wiersbe points out that the story of Gideon begins with him hiding in a wine press, and it ends with the enemy being slain in a wine press. And so the place that symbolized Gideon's fear became the place where faith triumphed. And God has a habit of doing that sort of thing, because that's exactly what's happened to us. Because there is a place that vividly displays our weakness and our fear where our defeat is most obvious. And it's not the saddle dome. It's the cemetery. 
Because death is obviously our most powerful enemy. And yet through Jesus Christ, we are now able to taunt that defeated foe in the words of Paul. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Death has been swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The place of defeat has become the place of triumph through Jesus Christ. In every funeral I've ever conducted, I've been so vividly aware that what looks like defeat has been transformed into victory through Jesus Christ. And so we can rejoice. And no doubt the Israelites celebrated this unexpected victory. There was jubilation throughout the land. Well, not exactly. Because, you see, you've got 12 tribes. And so that means there could be 13 different opinions. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, Now the Ephraimites asked Gideon, Why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they criticized him sharply. One of the things that we can expect after a great victory in our spiritual lives is that the enemy counterattacking with criticisms. You see, Ephraim was one of the largest of the tribes, and they had an ego to match. Gideon, how dare you not include us? How dare you defeat the Midianites without us? How could you deprive us of this glory? There's some people who just can't cope with someone else's success. It should have been me. And they criticized him sharply. In Judges chapter 8, we are reminded that any victory in our spiritual lives is not the end of the matter. There is still unfinished business. And so what we do after the victory is of utmost importance. Even though Satan has lost, he'll try to do as much damage as possible. The victory really is only the beginning. We have to maintain our momentum and finish strong. Only then do we become overcomers. So I want to point out three aspects of finishing strong here in Judges chapter 8. We don't have a time to go through all of the chapter, but we'll look at three of the main ones. And in these three aspects, we see Gideon at his best, and we see Gideon at his worst. He was facing three challenges, and the first challenge is how do you handle criticism? It says that the Ephraimites criticized him sharply. And of course, Gideon just lost it. Are you kidding? We just defeated our greatest enemy, and you're feeling sorry for yourself? You feel left out? Shame on you, a curse on you and your foolish tribe. If their criticism had come into direct contact with any pride in Gideon's heart, 
There would have been spontaneous combustion because pride will not tolerate criticism without massive retaliation. And Gideon would have been totally justified. The question was, why didn't you call us when you went to war? Well, the answer was obvious. Gideon didn't invite the soldiers of Ephraim because they would have just laughed at him. You're asking us to follow a farmer from the weakest clan in Manasseh? Are you serious? What do you think we are, a bunch of gypsies? And can you imagine how the Ephraimites would have reacted when all but 300 men were disqualified? There would have been a civil war. Ephraim would have ruined the whole plan, so they were not an option. And Gideon could have slashed back with a razor-sharp rebuke, but he didn't. Verse 2, but he answered them, what have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abizar? Gideon was not provoked by their criticism. This triumph had not animated his pride. He was humbled by the victory God had given them. Do you know that it's almost impossible to hurt a truly humble person with criticism? Almost impossible. It's easy to hurt someone with an inferiority complex, but not someone who has godly humility. And Gideon's humility is as impressive as his faith. Verse 3, God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. Once the Midianites were on the run, Gideon called in the Ephraimites to capitalize on this victory. And they were the ones who killed the two kings. You were the closers. You were the ones who clinched the victory. You played a decisive role in the battle. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, the resentment against him subsided. Satan came that close to spoiling the victory for Israel. And he tries to do this all the time, divide and conquer. He wants us to choose sides. It's us against them. If the enemy can get us to be suspicious of each other, to accuse each other, to compare ourselves with each other, then we can forfeit the advantage of any victory we may have achieved. But Gideon employed godly wisdom to short-circuit the enemy's attempt to sabotage this celebration. As Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1 points out, a gentle answer turns away wrath. So powerful. A gentle answer can turn away wrath. And if we do that, we won't give the enemy a costly turnover late in the game. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, the resentment against him subsided. But the battle was still raging. And so Gideon pressed on and they pursued two of the other Midianite kings until they too were executed. And to do this, they had to cross the Jordan River. Verse 4 says, Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. 
And when the mission was accomplished, Gideon returned. He came back over the Jordan, and his grateful nation gave him a standing ovation. We're going to have to reward you. How about if we give you the keys to the city and unlimited breadsticks? Or how about this? Verse 22, the Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. The first challenge was a criticism. The second challenge was exactly the opposite. If we want to finish strong, it is very important that we check our credit rating. After this successful pursuit, Gideon could have been so intoxicated with achievement that he could have kept the credit for himself. The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. Gideon's approval rating was over the top. This could have been the beginning of a dynasty. The house of Gideon will rule forever. Because that's exactly what we need. We need a king. So there's, we have all this anarchy. Everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. That's our problem. We need a godly king. It was very flattering, but also very tempting. Because if criticism can ignite our pride to anger, flattery inflates our pride to arrogance. So far, Gideon had avoided every trap the enemy set for him. Would he now escape the one set by his friends? Verse 23, but Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Gideon did not take the credit. He gave the credit to God. I think it was somebody who said that compliments should be treated like a bouquet of flowers. You smell the sweet fragrance, but you don't start eating them. Compliments are not to be taken internally. And above all, don't try to distill the aroma of your achievement and start your own line of perfumes under the title, My Success. So Gideon, to his credit, didn't capitalize on his fame. In humility, he turned down the promotion and he gave honor to God. God got the credit. This was his finest moment. And of course, they lived happily ever after. Almost. It would have been great if chapter 8 would have stopped there. But unfortunately, human nature always wants to get into the discussion. So verse 24 says, and he said, I do have one request. Gideon should have quit while he was ahead. The third challenge to finishing strong is that we need to keep focused. Gideon said, I do have one request. 
that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. So they spread out a garment, and each man threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels. But Gideon, verse 27, made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. And all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So where in the world did this idea come from? Give me your earrings. I'll make it into an ephod. Gideon did not want to be king because he wasn't interested in politics. However, religion was a different matter. An ephod is not like an iPod. It was part of the uniform worn by the high priest. I won't be your king, but I wouldn't mind maybe being your pope. And it made a lot of sense because Gideon's father, Joash, had been a a priest of Baal, so the priesthood was was a family tradition. And Israel's current crop of corrupt priests were an utter disgrace, whereas Gideon had met with the Son of God face to face. He was the most spiritual man in the nation, the kind of moral leader that Israel needed. So Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town, because this is where God appeared to me. Let this become a sanctuary for all who want to experience God's presence. And so the man who removed the idols of Baal and Asherah now was putting another idol in their place. That was probably not his intention, But the Israelites forgot about God and focused their worship on the ephod. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Gideon almost finished strong. What a shame. Somehow he got distracted. And that's what idolatry is really all about. It's something that distracts us away from God. And that's why even today, idolatry is still an irresistible temptation. Maybe because we simply get tired of believing in something we have not seen. We want something more tangible. It's like a little boy who said, I want a God with skin on. We want something that we can see. But Hebrews 11 verse 1 reminds us, faith is being certain of what we do not see. So idolatry becomes anything that distracts us from the invisible God. Anything that gets in the way, that commands our undivided attention. Like nature, for example. A lot of people worship nature. Evolution can become a form of idolatry. For me, a zoo can become an idol. I've got to really be careful with that. Or religion. Religion is, a, for many, a substitute for God. There are many things that can distract us from God. Remember when Jesus came to Bethany to the home of Mary and Martha? 
Mary was sitting at his feet, worshiping, listening. Martha was in the kitchen. And it says she was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And she became worried and upset about many things and had a meltdown. There are many things that can distract us. In fact, every trial we face, every temptation can distract us from God. We, we can become obsessed with temptation like greed or lust or pride and stop focusing on God. We can also become obsessed with our trials, the difficult things that we experience. The powers of darkness want us to focus our attention on anything anything at all except God. And danger and peril is a great distraction because it's so compelling. And in 2020, it was so easy because we were all fixed, had our eyes fixed on this pandemic. It became the author and perfecter of our fear. We listened to all the news reports. We, we thought about it all the time. We saw the evidence so clearly. All the people wearing masks. There were even bread lines outside of Cobb's Bakery. Sometimes we couldn't sleep at night worrying about it. Until fear begins to control our lives. And that's the end game of idolatry. It's control. And although we don't have an antidote to the virus yet... We already have an antidote to fear. We need to refocus our attention on God. And I think part of that means we have to ration our exposure to the news. Because a news broadcast is only trying to answer one question. What is the worst thing that happened today? And how much worse can it get tomorrow? A newscast will never tell you that God's mercies were new every morning. It's mostly bad news. And after a while, that becomes toxic. And that's precisely why we cannot let Dr. Fauci or David Muir or Lisa LaFlemme or Trudeau or Trump have the final word. After they have had their say, we need to let God have the last word every day and focus on that. You see, Gideon had listened to God throughout the Midianite crisis, carefully listened and obeyed. But towards the end, he kind of relaxed, and he wasn't really paying attention anymore. And that's how they ended up with this golden ephod. And you remember, in an earlier generation, the high priest had offered the Israelites a golden calf. Well, if we want to finish strong, we need to refocus. We have to keep listening to God, keep reading our Bibles, and don't get distracted by what people are saying, because that can become a snare. So if you spend 30 minutes listening to bad news, you need to spend the next 30 minutes listening to the good news of God's Word. So let me write you a prescription. Philippians 4 verse 8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, 
whatever is pure, whatever is lovely or admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Here's uh, four verses that I want to recommend you take after every newscast and just before bed. John 14.1, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. John 14.27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I, I do not give as the world gives. Do not be afraid. John 16.33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Can you feel that working? I mean, that's the antidote to fear right there. That's the cure for idolatry. So starting this week, let God have the last word every day, because if God is for us, Who can be against us? Romans 8.31. That's how you overcome. None of us know how we're going to finish our lives, whether we'll finish strong or not. But there's a way to train for that, to practice that. And that's by finishing strong every day. If you do that, you will definitely finish strong when the race is over. You will have kept the faith. That's how we overcome. Make finishing strong every day a habit. Because our victories are only the beginning. We need to keep going until we overcome. Only then are we finishing strong. And it's all about how we handle things like criticism. Not getting discouraged, not getting angry. It's how we stay humble, giving credit to God, not taking it for ourselves. And above all, how we keep focused on God. So finally, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely or admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Let's pray. Lord, the scriptures tell us that our greatest calling is to worship you with all our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. And if we do that, there are, there are no distractions because we've given it all to you. Our focus is on you and you alone. And Lord, we can practice that every day by letting you have the last word and by letting that sink in to our soul and permeate our minds and fill our hearts with joy and give us strength to live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.